When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. Oh, that new doctor is dropped at gorgeous. Oh, please, he's just another RV League educated surgeon with good hair. No, he's different. Nurses, we got a classy motorhome with a detached driver's side mirror. Meet me in the OR. Stat. Right away, doctor. No, 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 she's on break. I'll handle this one. Oh, you conniving little... When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates covered subject to policy terms. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 105 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Billy Howardell, I want to put a quick plug in for the Mistress Carrie backstage pass on Patreon. If the Mistress Carrie podcast, Cocktails in the War Room, and MistressCarrie.com, and of course, the Mistress Carrie radio shows isn't enough of me, then get yourself a backstage pass on Patreon. You can submit podcast questions, get exclusive photos and blogs, travel updates, behind-the-scenes info, monthly exclusive live streams, and access to a ton of free concert ticket giveaways. Click the Patreon link on mistresscarry.com or go straight to patreon.com slash I have been a fan of Billy Howardell's music for a long time. Billy's a member of A Perfect Circle and of Ashes Divide, and I've spoken to him a few times on my radio show. But with his new album coming out on Friday called What Normal Was, this is the first time the project is self-titled. Billy and I sat down and talked about his musical journey, his upbringing in New Jersey, and his pilgrimage like so many musicians to Los Angeles. Going from being a roadie and guitar tech to being in his own band, his songwriting process and inspiration, growing up in a military veteran family, the influence of artists like Jerry Cantrell and Maynard James Keenan on his music, and his upcoming tour. You can see Billy Howardell at the Brighton Music Hall in Boston on July 5th. And if you want to see all of his tour dates, click the link for his website in the show notes of this podcast. Billy is such an interesting and creative guy, and they sent me an advance of the new album, and oh, is it good. What Normal Was comes out this Friday, June 10th. 
So allow me to introduce you to Billy Howardell. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hello, Billy. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've I'm- met before with A Perfect Circle oh. and with Ashes Divide, but this is the first time that... I remember very well. This is this is a big deal for you. This is This is all you. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of Ashes 2.0, if you want to look at it that way. And it was going to be called Ashes Divide as of, you know, a few months ago. And the switch the switch came, and there's many things that come with it. And um, really learning what it is to rebrand and how hard that is, even when it's your name. <laughs> it's it, it definitely takes some, I don't know, d- uh, some explaining. For anybody that doesn't recognize the name Billy Howardell, they would know the music from Ashes Divide and also know you from A Perfect Circle. And you've got your new album coming out called What Normal Was, and it's coming out in just a few days, like June 10th. It's it's right around the corner. We're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. <laughs> Ner- nerve-wracking and exciting for all the things we're doing, getting ready for you know tour and release and music videos and all that stuff, so... I've been talking to a lot of artists, obviously, through COVID and kind of through the lockdown. And now that tours are starting to come back out, which you're going to be in Boston at the Brighton Music Hall on July 5th. Tell me how that affected the creativity of this album, the, the lockdown. Where did you write and record the record? I really recorded it starting. I mean, I was always, you know softly moving into the recording process as i always do you know the songs are like in an incubator and sit in a you know bank account of song files for a while come august of 2019 i was like okay i'm gonna focus on this like really focus on it and um yeah got to work my friend danny loner and i got in the studio and and just made the record and then kind of finished it really finished it by the winter of 2020 so the plan was to release it in may of 2020 so it's starting to mix in march early march and you know what happened there and then as we started to mix said okay we're going to put a pin in this and see what's happening and and uh and then kind of picked it up over the next summer and just kind of slowly started mixing them with this guy maddie green who mixed it remotely he's actually just down the street he's in la but we just did it remotely i listened in real time at full fidelity and 
we did it that way. So it was an interesting thing. The, cr- the creative process wasn't really done during COVID, but certainly the mixing part, which gave me a little extra time to, you know, kind of fine tune it the way I needed to. You said something really interesting, and I ask a lot of songwriters this question. So I kind of know the answer already because you just told me, but tell me about your songwriting process. Is it a riff? Is it a melody? Is it a lyric? And then what do you do when these ideas come to you? Do you put them in a notebook? Do you sing them into your phone? Because I talked to all these different artists and they kind of describe it as like having a net and just trying to catch the ideas and being able to hold on to them until you can do something with them. Um. It's, it's always a little different, but I find more and more, I have a, an upright piano in my living room, which I got, I don't know, a few years back. And that's really been nice because you just walk past it and throw something down. I have a studio too, but you know, then you got to be in the studio. And for me, I do find like things have to be organized in a certain way. You know, I start a file. Okay, let's name it. By the time it's, you know, it's like trying to be intimate and too many too many uh, ritual preparations go in and then the moment's lost. I find that's the same with music and like having a grand, <laughs> having an upright in the living room is kind of the key to throwing things down when I need to. But I think one of the keys for me is like not overdoing it too. Like not, not trying to write something new all the time. Um, although I write little pieces of things often, but not like a whole song. So, you know, put them into, a, I said before, like put them into a little bank account have a lot of ideas, you know, good luck remembering what they are. Sometimes they go missing for years and then listen back to them and then be surprised. You know, sometimes you can collaborate with yourself because you forgot all about doing something. And that, I think that's like the best part when I find something I wrote years ago and, and, and kind of remember it, but certainly wasn't thinking about looking for it. And then you kind of jump into it almost like a collaborator. I am such a, a, person that's fascinated by the craft of songwriting and people that have this innate musical ability because I have neither. My illustrious clarinet career in the marching band in high school was short-lived at best. Um, (laughs) But on the liner notes of this new record, you're kind of playing everything. Is there an instrument you don't play? Um, I don't play any of them particularly great. (laughs) um, i i uh no i mean there's plenty of things i don't play i did buy a violin during covid though i i went on amazon and made a i made a covid purchase it was like a 50 dollar violin and um yeah that that, i my hands are too big for it i guess that's the excuse i'm using i've joked on this show before that as a if you're a parent there's two instruments that you hope your kid doesn't want to learn how to play the violin and the drums yeah, exactly. Because it's well, just there, painful. Yeah, I know. But think, you know, now we have electronic, right? There's like, I actually bought a drum kit for my kids some years back and that, and they weren't interested. They seemed to be interested. And then when it was in here in my studio, they'd like never came to play it. So it became my drum kit. And uh, that's the one I did the record with. And, you know, I did the whole record here at my studio. We didn't go outside for anything. And it definitely goes to show that people have complimented the drums on this record. And I go, well, it's a, you know, it's not a, it's not a total starter kit, but it's like a thousand dollar drum kit, which in the world of professional drums is not a huge expense. Yeah. Neil Peart wasn't buying a drum set for a thousand dollars. No, <laughs> no. I mean, any kit that we take on the road, like the drummer that I'm taking out, this kid, Grayson Decruitman is just having a new kit made. And I guarantee you it's three to four to five times that. So, um, yeah, 
but you can, I, I do like bending, you know, lesser instruments to my will, you know, and I think a lot of people do. I think that's a, even though he's somewhat of a more contemporary artist, I think Jack White is just amazing for that. Like just, it seems like the guitar doesn't need to be completely in tune. He will make it work. And that danger and that uncertainty is something that makes it human and makes it really cool. And I, you know, there's plenty of, um, I don't want to talk anybody out of my record too far, but there's so many mistakes I left in the record that for me, I hear them. I don't know if you would, but I think they just add texture and they add a human element that, um, I think is important for engagement as long as they're the right kind of mistakes, happy accidents. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said that because I had this really fascinating conversation with Miles Kennedy and we were talking about technology allowing rock musicians to take all the personality and those happy accidents out of the music and therefore remove a little bit of the soul. And because your new record, there's so much electronics in it. Um, I'm so happy to hear you say that you kind of left those imperfections in there because it would have been yeah. very easy for you to remove them. Yeah. I mean, if I, <laughs> I'm so, I'm, t- so Danny Loner is going to come up. Danny Loner was in Nine Inch Nails when I worked for Nine Inch Nails back in, you know, Downward Spiral and the uh, Fragility Tour. He's going to play guitar on this upcoming tour. And I'm, and, and he helped me with the record, but he, you know, he didn't play the guitar. So now I'm showing him how to play it. And he's like, Oh my God. And I'm playing the tracks, like sending him the stems or the individual tracks in the record. He's like, dude, you left this in the record. <laughs> <laughs> it is shockingly bad. And, but, but sometimes it's like a first take. A lot of times for me, it is recording a first take idea just to get it down. So you don't lose the moment, move on and keep working. I, I will tweak in logic on my, you know, my computer over and over for, 10 hours, but I will only take three minutes to track something one time, you know, I'll, I'll kind of just go and try and make it right. You know, it's like, um, so I, that's something that live, then it can become something a little more. Cause then you're kind of fine tuning and honing and then there's more power that comes from it. And I just, I like that part of live versus recorded music. I like to, you know, have something a little bit more fragile on the record and just come out with more, you know, testosterone live. You alluded to it a little bit for anybody that doesn't know your history and your backstory. You went from being behind the scenes as a tech to ending up on the stage yourself. Um, There have been many times that the guitar tech or, you know, one of the roadies has saved the day stepping in for somebody like James Hetfield after a pyro right. incident, like yeah, you're you're the first person I think that I've had on the show that that's kind of I've interviewed techs and obviously musicians, but um, that's not exactly the most normal way to get to the point you're at now is to be a guitar tech for. Didn't you work for Fishbone? Yeah. Who yeah, else that did was you like, work for? Got started. I'll give you the whole rundown. Hit me with it. Be quick. Okay, the Throbs was the very first band. You never heard that band, right? No. They were okay. Deep cut. Early, late eighties, early nineties. Um, wanted to be Guns and Roses Part Two and Black Crows, you know. And and it was um, I don't know if they wanted to be, but that was definitely what it felt like. <laughs> they and they were so wild they got dropped. They were just too they were too crazy. Um, then went right onto Fishbone, like a few I don't know six months later or less, and that's where I stayed for three years, and that's a lot of the relationships I made in the music industry, especially in the beginning. And Fishbone was in this 
perfect prime position, which unfortunately they never really took off, but a lot of the bands opening for them did. You know, the Mighty Bosstones opened for them, another Boston band, right? Yeah. Come on. Um, Stone Temple Pilots, Tool. uh, There's just so many big bands that went on to, to create success and they didn't, but they were the most amazing live bands. So I met a lot of people, including Maynard and all the Tool guys. And that's where that relationship started. But they just were really well respected. So in the early '90s in LA, the Jane's Addiction was, you know, the the really hot ticket at the time. Rage Against the Machine, and and uh, I don't know. There's just such a cool music scene coming out of the hair metal scene and into that early '90s scene. And um, so from there, from Fishbone, I went to Faith No More, I think, and Smashing Pumpkins, um, then Nine Inch Nails, uh, David Bowie. And then worked in the studio with Guns N' Roses on that um, uh, Chinese Democracy record for like two and a half years before I just, I had to go and I had to leave my day job to go try music basically and, and um, started Perfect Circle. And like, you know, I really started the foundations of Perfect Circle early, but just like what, when it became like a project really with Maynard and I was like 98. You were born on the East Coast though, right? You're a Jersey guy? Yeah. Yeah. No um, accent? You can't tell? Come on. <laughs> when, you can if I start drinking and I'm with my friends. I just got a voicemail from a kid I grew up with. I'm like, oh my God, man. I sound, I guess I sounded like that too. People ask me about my Boston accent and they're like, oh, you don't really sound like you're from Boston. I'm like, get me drunk and piss me off and you're going to hear it. it exactly. <laughs> yeah, give me a little little road rage. And you couple, motherfucker! It comes right yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have any. You you, you and I lost it. We got, we got watered down. Broadcasting school did it for me. Yeah. You know, just yeah. trying to learn how to pronounce R's. It's very difficult. I think it's me overcompensating for the fact I just barely graduated high school and <laughs> that I can't spell anything. So I probably, you know, I think this is, this is therapy chair time right now. It seriously uh, yeah. is. It always ends up a therapy session on this show. Yeah. It totally happens. I never... Never thought of it that way. That's me overcompensating by trying to pronunciate things yeah, or pronounce things. So when did you go from <laughs> even better? When did you go from the East Coast to the West Coast? Like high school I, era? When did you make that yeah. famed ride to LA? Oh man. The the bus ride was with the Throbs, the first band I toured with, and um 90, 91, 91, I think. Um that's when it really all started for me before that I was like, I graduated high school and then went to work for Jersey, New Jersey and New York bands and corporate events, but mostly in lighting and then got a touring gig, realized there was something, the position of a guitar tech came to my attention. And then I was like, well, I just started playing guitar. That sounds good. I can never leave the instrument I love and, you know, still work for someone that takes care of theirs. Um, So went to, got to LA Woke up on a tour bus, literally in front of the uh, the whiskey on Sunset, and did load in. My tour manager was this guy Richard Cole, who tour managed Led Zeppelin and you know many bands back in the a day. A few so, bands we may uh, have heard of. Oh yeah, and he was already like an old school guy then, and so he was like, "All right, we're going up. Come with me." He like grabbed me by the shoulder and. We're going to have lunch. It takes me up to the rainbow, which is, you know, like two blocks up the street. And Lemmy is the freaking door guy. And we meet John Entwistle for lunch. And there was some other big musician. And and now at this point, it's so funny when you think about time compressing, 
right now, if you said, oh, this is a band from 20 years ago, well, I don't know, maybe because I'm a little older, but I go, okay, that's all, that's a while ago, but that's not ancient history. Things are still in color. For me, in 1990, 20 years ago, it that's like- the 70s. Dude, it's the 70s. It was a different world. Things changed quicker then for all you youngsters. Like things <laughs> don't change as quick now. They do in ways, but not like, I don't know. You'd have to help me explain that. But, but to, to see, like to basically be with the guy that was intimately out with Led Zeppelin and hearing all these stories and these guys shooting the shit about everything going on that went back in the day and reminiscing about it. I was just so blown away. Like I was just, you know, a 19 year old kid landing or 20 year old kid landing in LA um, at the, at, you know, the most LA place to be. Growing up, were you exposed to music from your parents? Were they musical and how supportive were they when you're like, I'm getting on a tour bus with the throbs. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> dad, no. Um, dad's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When are you going to get a job? You know, my dad was never, um, uh, he was like, do something with your hands that no one can take away from you. That's the advice. And don't go to college. My dad was a not college guy. It, not, not don't go to college at all means, but he's like, I'll do the math. He just laid out a piece of paper. He goes, you'll go to college and you'll owe this much money and your, and your peers will go to college and make this money and they'll make more eventually, but you'll be making more. And if, if you put it away and people are having that argument that, right now, your dad was ahead of his time. Yeah. And he's like, you know, you'll just, you'll learn a craft that will you, if you keep excelling at it, then you're going to, you're going to do well. You just find, you know, find what you love and you'll do it. So it was good advice. And, you know, probably because like I told you before, I'm not, I, I barely got through high school. I had a great time in high school, but I just, I was probably undiagnosed dyslexic and just can't spell, never read a book in my life. Um, it seems a lot of people that work in the music business were just bored above all else. We <laughs> were there, but we were just bored. Yeah. I really was passionate about it, though. I loved, I mean, going to a show and all the excitement of people saving up money to go to that big event. I still get butterflies and I'm, I'm not jaded at all when it comes to live shows. Like I just, I love when the lights go down and the stage lights come up and the people, I don't know. I just can read it on people's faces. They save up money to go to the special event. I call it my tour energy. allowance. I have yeah. a special envelope to put <laughs> money in to save up for concert tickets. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth it. I mean, it's like, there's a cathartic thing about it. So yeah. But was so music anyway, on in the house? No, no. Well, my dad listened to country, you know, uh, country Western was like what I grew up listening to with him. So it's a big part of my growing up. Um, you know, I go, I was thinking about it yesterday, Memorial day. It was like, you know, I would go with him to the VFW hall on a lot of weekends, especially as a young kid. And basically what it was, was him to go drink at the bar with the three classes of, of veterans, right? They're the, the World War II guys, the old schoolers, his, which is the Korean conflict, you know, guys, and then the, the young whippersnappers, the Vietnam guys. And so I'd be just sitting there playing pool with all of them. And that's like how I grew up, part of how I grew up, you know, and the other part was being at home, hopefully playing football out at the school field with my, my friends and, you know, and playing hockey. But it's you know, unbelievable he, to me how many musicians and people that work in the music industry come from veteran families. Yeah. 
It's it's that have veteran dads specifically. It's unbelievable. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Yeah. Because I grew up in a military yeah. family and I'm married to an active duty Marine. So it's something that Absolutely. just is yeah. always around, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. No, it, it was, it was a, it was a big part of, it, it wasn't a big deal. Like I know, I think now, like I have kids and it, it becomes, I think a turnoff for some younger kids that's sanctimonious and they go like, no, this is, if it's just every day and it's normal, like to pay respects to people that are keeping you safe. And that, my God, like you, you think about, you could go in any direction. Like I considered going in the military because I really did want to travel, but I caught the bug with guitar too much where it went the other way. But it was very, I'd say there was a 35% chance I was going to do it because I just knew I wasn't going to go to college. And, um, you know, but I found what I really loved. And I think I could have had a career there too. I've, I'm friends with, you know, people in the military now that, you know, enjoy it. You get to a certain level and you, it's like anything else. You find your craft and you get passionate about it. And there's, it's not just one stereotype that you become, you know, there's many avenues you can go down. My husband's been career military and he's the exact opposite of you. He's been trying to learn how to play the guitar for that entire time. (laughs) Way more successful with the guitar. I mean, way more successful with the military than he has been with his guitar playing. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that, but that's what, you know, can keep, keep you going, right. Having something at home or to go, like I love cooking. So even if I'm playing music, I do enjoy, I really enjoy cooking unless I have to, unless I'm like onto a song and then I have to go, Oh man, I gotta go cook dinner for the family. I love doing it, but man, I don't want to break right now. So when I have a theory about music that you kind of grow up being gifted this music, like you talked about the country music from your dad, because it's just around and you're exposed to it. And then yeah. there's an artist or an album or a song and you as your own person make the decision and say, well, that's what I like. That's mine. So where did your love of rock music come from? What was it? It was really um, alternative rock. Like I said, the things I grew up, the things that I grew up around, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s in New York, New Jersey area, you, you were getting you know, mainstream rock radio, which was the Beatles, the Stones, Led Zeppelin, the Who, you know. And it was fine, but it wasn't, it was just too accessible, I think, and not as special. It was, it still was kind of, I mean, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, I'm a big fan. I was a really big fan, but when I discovered true alternative music in the late seventies, especially the early eighties was just such a cool time to me that I definitely found my lane. And, um, when I, there wasn't many people that knew about it in my surroundings, but there was a few, this kid, Craig Raposa. Um, my next door neighbor, Tommy Rogers, they had like these amazing record collections of like the cures, like the cure, the second, second and third cure record faith and 17 seconds were when I kind of dipped into that world and, uh, echo and the Bunnymen were coming online and, and, you know, killing joke and things like that. There was one, I've told this story so many times, but I'll tell it again. My mom's clock radio in her room got a station in long Island called WLIR and they played what would become alternative music around the country, whether it was like Depeche Mode and uh, Elvis Costello, Dick Kennedy's, or, you know, like just things that weren't on mainstream rock radio. And that's what turned me on. That's what made me go buy records, go search out, you know, go find that culture that, you know, was uh, elusive, you know, just wasn't everywhere. So I ask all these questions because I got to hear um, an advanced copy of uh, what normal was. 
And, you know, in the 80s for me, I got into the the hair metal and the heavy metal stuff like the Priest and the Maiden, you know, the Bon Jovis of the world, all of that stuff, the Def Leppards, all that. But there was this vein in me that loved that kind of goth rock, that melodic Depeche Mode cure Duran Duran like that that I just it 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 speaks to my bone marrow and when I listened to your new album I was like oh he gets me (laughs) this it's like a warm blanket it it makes me so happy oh that's awesome yeah I this record really is a reflection back to that time right it's like this little musical diary of inspiration from like early 80s, 81, 84, 85. I mean, it goes past that, obviously, but there's such good songs back there, but there was that interesting time of hybrid of bringing synths into, I wouldn't call it heavy music because there's a part of me that obviously likes really heavy music. And it's part of what I brought to, you know, the table of Perfect Circle. Like I loved Randy Rhodes. The first two Aussie records were what I really flipped out on with, I would say, heavier music. And, um, and then Alice in Chains after that, which by that time I was up touring with those guys. But I, when I heard Alice in Chains, all my demos that of my music that I've been writing now for at that time, maybe four years that were very much like this record, maybe even a little bit more like second guitar, uh, second cure record, like a little more guitar driven, you know, new wave, I guess. Um, I just love Jerry Cantrell. I tuned my guitar to C sharp and never went back. I'd like once I heard dirt or not even dirt, it was like a facelift still. I just went like kind of incorporated that. And that's what perfect circle became like what you're hearing on this record and the heavier elements. And, but this record is going back to the demos of every song I probably ever, ever written and flushing them out with the, you know, now I know how to make this record and I can afford to make this record because it's cheaper to make this record than it was when we were kids. I, I wanted a synth when I was a kid, but there's no way I could afford it. You know, I could barely afford the, the, I borrowed a guitar from my uncle that he got at Sears and Roebuck for, you know, it was like a plastic guitar. That was my first thing. And then I went up buying my first $300 guitar. Um, so synth music was a rich kid's sport as far as I understood it. I just didn't know anyone that had access to that. So here, here's my, uh, this is me, you know, why, partly why I wanted to call this record or come, have it come out under my name is this is probably the most authentic thing to me musically that you can get, whether it's how I'm singing or how it, um, the music I'm tapping into. I read something that, that Maynard actually gave you some advice about following yeah. your passion, right? Well, following his thing was, and this is, it's almost like not, a cool thing to admit. And then, you know, when somebody sells you, I told you so Maynard, (laughs) I told you so. And he never told you so after the fact, but when I was starting to do ashes divide in like 2006 is when I really started that. I, you know, I would sing like in my backup parts in perfect circle are a lot of times quite high. You know, I'm trying to do the things either he did on the record or I did that were up there. And so I think I just was in that pattern. I was just in that range. So I just kept singing that way with ashes. And then I'd look back on it now when I'm, after I did this record, I just didn't want to be in a place that was playing that character. I mean, we always play a character when you're doing music, you're, you have something you're kind of putting on a bit. You're not doing a spoken word record or I'm not speaking like I am now, but Maynard's advice back then was, 
you've got a great speaking voice. Why don't you use that when you're singing? And so at first I was like, what? You know, like I, I honestly was a bit like, what? <laughs> uh, I didn't really get it. And now whether it's exactly what he meant or not, that's what I did on this record. I think it's more, if you, like I have kids and I've showed them ashes and I've showed them this, they can't recognize it's me from the ashes record when I'm singing, but you can hear it's me speaking. If you hear this record. So take that for what it's worth. I, it comes up a lot on the show, the influence of um, technology and, and how it changed music, specifically in the 80s. That's what you're talking about with the synths. But it, it wasn't just with the keyboards, but, you know, you look at a guy like, um, you know, uh, Rick Allen from Def Leppard and forced to modify how he plays and to bring in technology. And it totally changed the sound of Def Leppard when they made his drum kit electronic. And the eighties was that real kind of transition decade between the old analog way of doing things and this new fangled technology and these new computer things people started having access to. It changed, right. it changed the sound of a lot of bands. Yeah. Yeah. And that technology, which was, part of what makes me tick, right? Like I, I love playing music, but I really love the tech part. I liked being a guitar tech. I like working on computers and, and in the service of other musicians and making music. And, and back then in that time, I didn't have access. I wish I did. I wish I had that one MIDI guru that I knew. I swear I'd be ruling the, I probably wouldn't be a musician though. I'd be having a competitor to Roland or something like that. Like I was just so thirsty to get into technology stuff, but I just didn't have access to it. And, um, then it was very hard to make songs. It was very hard to make songs on your own. Everyone's so spoiled with, you know, all of us are spoiled with technology that on your phone, if you have an iPhone, you've got GarageBand for 10 bucks and you can, you can get major damage done on that thing. It's, it's amazing. And, and what I would have, given to have that like just that record four tracks on the computer i remember even on the downward spiral tour in 1994 i got my very first laptop and i just wanted to record four tracks at the same time and now it's unlimited you can do as many as you want but it was just the thought of like i can get these ideas down but there's something about that hunger and lack of access that will give you and you know will might make the guitar more special for your husband who doesn't have the ability to do it all day right it's like that's what makes it really special i started working in radio in 1991 and over covid i built my own studio like yeah. if you had told me 30 years ago i'd have my own radio studio and my own recording studio i'd have been like there's no way but yeah. technology's <laughs> changed all of the the aspects of this industry right yeah but you do i think i'm saying this in a, as a cautionary tale too to say you know be care it's just like music and the, the you know i've got kids so what they listen to i've had this talk especially with my older son about the immediacy of some things and equating it to food you know early we're trying to teach him about like kids about food you know like that why we need food with substance it's not just because it tastes good or bad it's just like you need it to function you need you need potassium you need magnesium you need things that you're getting from your food that if you don't have it, you don't feel good. And then every other, everything else doesn't matter. So if you just eat cotton candy all day, you're going to feel like shit. Yeah, it's great <laughs> than the first time, but you do. And music's a little like that too. There's immediate pleasure f music that eventually you don't feel great listening to it. You know, it's a different, it's the analogies there if you, if you are gracious enough <laughs> to kind of chase it. But I, I 
try to think of it that way and, and go the chasing something that's a little harder to get like a nutritious meal or music that might have some depth to it, but it's not on the surfaces. Maybe is shiny, a shiny object that catches your attention, get, you know, reaps big benefits. And I think we grew up in a time, right. That we listened to records and you kind of suffered through a lot of records that weren't great, but you got through some amazing stuff and you might've got the whole vision that the artist was thinking of in the first place. Cause you know, we've heard it many times who knows if the Rolling Stones would have succeeded if they weren't shepherded and, and given, you know, another chance to make another record or whatever. If their or first single band. didn't go viral on TikTok, where would the stones have gone? Yeah, exactly. And they're not like going, oh, well, we better like uh, drink a gallon of mustard. That way our song's going to take off. You know, like I feel bad for all the kids now that are just think they have to be, you know, what used to be just shooting heroin in your eyeball to get attention. Now you got to, yeah, you got to. You got to learn a dance. You got to. Yeah. You got to be in Jackass. Yeah, you got to you got to be a Jackass cover band to uh, to make it. Before I let you go, I have to ask you this question, and I ask every songwriter this question because the answers are always fascinating. And like I said, I am fascinated by the craft of songwriting. So, as a songwriter, this is a this is a craft question. Can you give me an example or two of songs from any artist, any genre that? are so well-crafted that the songwriting is perfect, but explain why. All right. This is, uh, enjoy the silence by Depeche Mode. Oh, God, I love and I, that song hung me up in 2007 when I was making the ashes record, because again, back to that record, the, the that record sounded much more like this record I'm doing, not as kind of flushed out, but much more like it. Yeah. Um, and as I was writing the record and trying to find the songs that I, I usually have a couple, like two albums that steer a record for me. First perfect circle record was Fiona Apple's title for her first record and OK Computer by Radiohead. Interesting. Those were the, those were the two records that really I had as measuring sticks for me. And, and I don't know exactly what it was, but there was something about, it's just something about those records that pushed me along and um and go to do the ashes record it was that song and but it was enjoy the silence and i go what's the fucking point of writing anything this song's been written and it's i had that kind of defeated <laughs> had, it's like listening like, to hendrix and going why do i want to play guitar yeah yeah and it's a terrible thing it's something i talk people out of all the time now because of the whole social media YouTube sensation phenoms that come out and, you know, next thing you know, your kid is 10 years old and they go, it's too late for me. This little girl in China is five and she can, you know, play Bach and this, I'm not going to touch the piano. I can't do it. It's too late. You know, it's a little of that, that terrible self depredation, degradation, terribleness that we go through. So I don't know. That song messed me up back then for sure. What is it about it that messes you up? Is it is it the sound of it, the lyrics, the structure, or just all of it? All of it. It's that lyrics. There's other songs that have hit me harder. I think there's other songs. I was never a lyric guy, honestly, growing up. It was about the the atmosphere and the um, what where the song took me. Um, even though I was a big Elvis Costello fan, like a really big fan when I was growing up, I I, I more took the whole thing in not just reading the lyrics and discard the rest um enjoy the silence 
I, I think the simplicity, something I tried to chase on this record too, which is what's great about Depeche Mode and a lot of bands from that era, Tears for Fears, it wasn't overly, there was space between the instruments. The way that we frequency, they, they frequency stacked things allowed you, to me, to turn it up loud without it being fatiguing. Now, like there's some records that I love, but I turn it up and I go, uh, like it just, it hits my ears and it's like shrill. And those records keep turning it up and tell me when it gets shrill. It's just, they're recorded well. They're, you know, so that was one thing in, for what normal was that I really wanted was a record that sounded really good. And Matty Green completely nailed it. And that guy was so patient. He's Canadian. So, you know, what can you say? He's like the nicest guy. He's so nice. Painfully nice. Painfully nice. Every time I go like, oh man, I know we're done with Cherry. Like I have my working titles. Like, can we just go back? I got one more thing I want to throw to you, but can we tighten up this one? He goes, no problem, man. No problem. He was so nice. And we we were in COVID hell still, but you know, still, he's like, he could just tell me, yeah, you were, (laughs) you hired me to do a mix and we did the mix and it's done, you know? He was just so cool. Well, that yeah, so, you can tell because that's why I said it's like a warm blanket. Like it, it kind of, it kind of hugs you. It yeah. wraps itself around you. When I listened to it, I was like, "Wow!" Thanks. I am really proud of this record. I'm really, I can still listen to it. Like I don't. There's nothing about it that sounds like work for me, which is not always the case, you know. Well, now not you got to figure out how to play everything. it all live. Yeah. Now that's a whole other thing. I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say, but I'm not ready. I'm like, I, the, the band arrives tomorrow here to my studio and I am scrambling making keyboard patches because that is the hardest thing is like going back to the record and finding the source material. Oh my God, it's not easy. So well, you better figure it out by July 5th because you're going to be in Boston and I'm going to be at the oh, show. Oh, by then we'll be old hat. I'm just, <laughs> but the, the, the first warm up show is going to be interesting, you know, but it's going to be great. But, you know, it's, it's in that mode of like, I don't know, how, are we going to pull this off? And you always pull it off, you know, but you always ask that question, like, can we actually do this? Yeah. Well, the album comes out June 10th. What normal was Billy. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today and I'll see yeah. you in July. Congratulations. Yeah. I'll see you then. Thanks. Nice chat with you. There he is. Billy Howardell. The new album, what normal was comes out this Friday, June 10th. And you can see him at the Brighton music hall coming up on July 5th. If you want more information about Billy or me, you can check the links in the show notes of this podcast. While you're there, check out the corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, and it's filled with my guest music and all of the other music that we talk about in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. Plus, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. If you want details on the Mistress Carrie radio show, Cocktails in the War Room, my weekly streaming video show on Tuesday nights at 8.30 Eastern on Facebook, or if you want to shop in the official Mistress Carrie store, just head to mistresscarry.com. The new tank tops are in, just in time for summer. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Thank you. 
Adventure X from Capital One is the travel card for people always asking, where next? You earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel and 2x miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Progressive is America's number one motorcycle insurer, so we understand motorcycles. No, really, we have a bike translator. Okay, so this bike says she is struggling with her place in the motorcycle community. Well, she says she hasn't peaked yet, but she's having a little epiphany. Okay. Oh, that maybe life itself is the peak. Hmm, interesting. In my experience, I found that... That's why I just translate. Not allowed to have opinions. Got it. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.